So we are going to begin our trek through the book of Mark uh, this week. If you remember two weeks ago, we did kind of an intro into the book of Mark with some of the the background, who wrote it, why it was written. Uh, I'm going to give kind of a brief recap in case you weren't here for that, because it's really important uh, to remember what was going on when this book was written, to remember who wrote this book and why they wrote it. Uh, It gives us a lot of insight as we move in and through. Uh, so, so very quickly, uh, if you would like more, all of our messages are online, uh, elkinsalliance.com. You can go back and listen uh, and get the details. But in a snapshot, the book of Mark, written by a guy named John Mark, but it's actually the story of the apostle Peter. Uh, Mark basically wrote down Peter's account of Jesus' life. Happened in the mid-60s AD, and it's important to remember that because at that time, persecution of the church was really starting to ramp up. Uh, things were heading to uh, a dark time in the, in the life of the church, like I don't know that we've seen since. Uh, just the, the level of persecution that was happening and, and martyrdom that was happening. And so Peter, actually in prison, uh, awaiting to be martyred himself, was looking around and he said, the church... It's, it's, it's in it. Things are coming that the church, if it's not prepared, this could crush it. And the, the message that Peter came up with, the message that the church needed to hear as it headed into uncertainty and persecution was the church needed to remember who Jesus is. Peter has written other letters before this, First and Second Peter, that were just kind of, hey, here's what it looks like to live the life of a Christian. Here's how to lead your family. Here's here's how to live with character like Jesus called us to. But now at the end of Peter's life, he says the church needs to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus if it's going to make it through times of uncertainty and persecution. Times of uncertainty. Does that sound a little familiar, church? Peter was agreeing with the author of Hebrews who wrote this in Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Peter, at the end of his life, again, waiting for martyrdom himself, said the church needs to remember the story of Jesus. It can't just become myth and legend. They need to know who Jesus is. So Mark, take down my story. Once I'm gone, make sure the church remembers who Jesus is. And so that's what the book of Mark is is Peter's account of Jesus' life so that the church would not forget who Christ is. So as we start this morning, we're going to start at the beginning, starting in Mark 1.1, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses. So I'm going to read them as a whole, and then we'll go through and just kind of break them down uh, and move through. Some things we're going to move through pretty quickly. Some things we're going to kind of land and camp on. Uh, So just the best way I know how to say it is hold on to your butts, because we're just going to be moving through this. So, Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Son of God, or excuse me, the Son of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him, and they were baptized by him at the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, I take delight in you. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 
He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. So there is a lot there. And like I said, some of it we're going to move through pretty quickly. But just starting at the beginning, Mark 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning of the gospel, or excuse me, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Peter, through Mark, starts off in verse 1 with an incredibly bold claim. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's making a Messiah claim. Everything the Old Testament had ever been pointing toward is Jesus. And now, some of these things, we've heard them so much that we just kind of move right on past it. We talked about it last time, as if Jesus Christ was just Jesus' full name. Jesus, when he was walking around, actually would have been known as Jesus, Jesus, Joseph's son from Nazareth. Like, if you wanted Jesus' full name, that was it. Christ was actually a title put on him. Messiah, the, the, the chosen one of God. When you read through the Old Testament, there are all kinds of prophecies pointing to the Messiah that was to come one day. And so again, something that we can just read over and not even catch. But when Peter said... Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was making the boldest claim anyone could make. And in fact, he was making a claim that many people had made before. You find this as you read through the Gospels. There's, there's times where even the Pharisees are talking and they're going, look, we've seen people come who said they were the Messiah before. They died. Everything fell apart. It wasn't him. Like, we don't need to worry about it. And so when Peter is saying it, it's, it's, it's a shocking claim, but it's also one that people have seen proved wrong a bunch of different times before. And so Peter puts a little proof on it. He doesn't just go, trust me, he's the Messiah. He says, look, that even in the way that his friend John went before him points to him being the Messiah. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his path. That is a quote from the book of Isaiah, or excuse me, um, yeah, in Isaiah, but it's also uh, very closely quoted in Malachi, where Malachi says this, look, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If that sounds familiar, it's because in the book of Luke, when, it talks, when Luke writes out kind of a long story of John the Baptist's birth, an angel, Gabriel, comes to Zechariah, John's father, and he tells him exactly that. Your son, who's to be called John, God is going to use to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. They're backing up this Messiah claim. John was told about in the Old Testament. Like this is the same guy that God said he would send before him. Even in verse 6, again, some things we read now and we go, weird, why would you even put that detail in there? Verse 6 says this, John wore a camel hair garment and a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Peter, what? okay, so John was a weirdo. Like, what are you trying to tell us? Why would you tell us that he wore a camel hair shirt and a leather belt and that he ate weird things? Like, why would you tell us that? And it's because even those, the Jewish audience that was familiar with their Old Testament, would have put together with the prophet Elijah. In 2 Kings 1.8, we're not going to look at it now, uh, but somebody comes to the king and they say, hey, there's a guy outside wearing camel hair and a leather belt. And the king goes, oh, that's Elijah. Send him in. Uh, Elijah was known for wearing that garment. It's referenced a couple times in the Old Testament. And so even in this kind of weird detail, Peter's going, I'm telling you, this is the guy that God sent before his Messiah. John came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for the Lord. This would only happen if Jesus was the Messiah. Does that make sense? Okay. So, uh, so moving on, in Mark 1, 4-5, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John was a celebrity of celebrities. Everybody knew who John the Baptist was. 
Think about this. The whole Judean countryside, it says flocking to him. You get the picture of people are in danger of being trampled to get to John. Everyone knew who John was. Even the religious elite, the Pharisees, came to visit him. You, you read about it in the other Gospels, going, whoa, 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 like, how are you drawing such a crowd? Who, by whose authority are you doing this? And they begin to question him because his celebrity is even greater than theirs, and, the, and they start to get threatened. But think about this. The people flocking to John, why? To be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. Even to the point where they do something that in the American church is almost completely unheard of. They confess their sins out loud in front of people. The, the, the time was so ripe. People were so wanting forgiveness. People were so wanting to be right with God that they would even confess their sins out loud in front of other people so that they could be baptized and be forgiven. It's an incredible time, not one like we see in the Old Testament history, and honestly, not one much like we see today. Hearts have grown cold, but God had worked it in such a way that there was this groundswell of people who wanted to be close to him. And again, the Judean countryside meant shepherds, fishermen, farmers, these were not the elite. This was not those that had it figured out that came to John and went, this is the obvious next step. They pushed back, but it was the common, ordinary people that just had a burning desire to be close to God like they had read about maybe in the Old Testament. And so they flock to John and his celebrity, like I said, greater than any of the other religious leaders at the time, which got him into some trouble. Verse 7, and he was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. How did John hold such high celebrity and have even higher humility? Think about that. If two or three people come up to me after the service and go, hey, great message, you killed it. I'm in danger. Like pride is rearing its ugly head John had an entire nation of people flocking to him. And yet his message wasn't, hey, hey, guys, don't forget about me. Put the spotlight back over here. His message was, the whole reason I'm here is because somebody's coming that you guys need to know. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandals. This was the lowliest servant's work. If you came over to my house and I was a good Jewish person, I had a servant who was going to come untie your sandals and wash your feet. If I'm a good host, I've paid someone to wash your feet. And John is going, I'm not even worthy to do what the lowliest servant is. That's how high above me he is. That's how great he is. Don't even look at me. This, again, it's, it's so hard to even wrap our heads around. People clamoring to get close to John. And John, we never see anything of him getting caught up in it and going, that's right, bring it on. More applause, please. It's continually reflecting and going, no, 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 no. Jesus is coming. One is coming far greater than me. Don't miss it. Don't get caught staring at me. Look at him. The humility of John is incredible to the point where you have to ask again, how was he able to maintain such high celebrity and such high humility? We'll come back and deal with that one in a minute, but it's, it's crazy to me. And then John says this, again, another statement that we miss because we're so familiar with. He says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We are so used to hearing about that. Oh, the Holy Spirit, right. We pray and we ask the Holy Spirit things. We tell somebody, yeah, yeah, when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit. And it's just become this kind of nonchalant, yeah, of course, everyone knows that. When John said, I'm doing it with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, here's what would have happened in the mind of every fisherman, shepherd, farmer, lowly person in society. They would have gone, whoa, 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 John, you... <laughs> You've got it twisted, man. Hold on. Like, in the Old Testament, the only people who had the Holy Spirit come on them was a handful of kings and prophets. 
Those that like, we're hesitant to even speak their names. They're held in such high regard. They had the Holy Spirit come on them. What are you talking about that I could be baptized with the Holy Spirit? God lives over in Jerusalem in that nice fancy house that we built for him. What do you mean he's going to come and live with me? It was completely unheard of. They would have gone back to Joel 2.28, where Joel says this, After this, talking about when the Messiah comes, I will pour my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. They would have gone, John, 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 first of all, me, the Holy Spirit? But that would also mean that this Jesus would have to be the Messiah. They were making such bold claims. We see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, when again, Peter is teaching after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, and this is what he tells the crowds. He reminds them of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. The Holy Spirit coming was proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Again, it's become just kind of so, yeah, of course that's what happens. We've made it theological for them to even think about experiencing the Holy Spirit was unheard of. It was something that they had heard in legends from things prophesied hundreds and thousands of years before. And to even imagine that this would happen in their day had to put them in a, whoa, is, it, is this guy crazy? But they saw such humility. They saw such power in the life of John that they were in and they flocked. The next verse. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by, in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. First of all, I would just, if anyone questions whether this was Peter's words, you read the other Gospels and you get words like, and the heavens opened up. Peter, a man of action like we talked about, and the heavens were torn apart. Literally means ripped asunder. God was in like such a hurry to show his son who he was that he ripped the heavens open. Peter is a man of action, and you can see it. I call them Peterisms. We're going to read them all through here, where everyone else kind of took their time and told a nice story, and Peter's just like, he kicked the door down. He ripped the thing open. The heavens were ripped open. The Spirit comes down on Jesus like a dove, and God says, you are my beloved son. I take delight in you. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his baptism here is, is where his public story starts, the first thing that happens is God speaks identity over Jesus. Above and beyond anything else, you are my beloved son, and I take delight in you. Identity paves the way for everything that is going to come in Jesus' ministry. The foundation for everything that Jesus did was that he is God's son, and God delights in him. That was the motivation, the, the backing power for everything that Jesus did. Sometimes we, we confuse Jesus' identity. And we know, again, theologically, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And we go, that makes 200%. And we say, that's why it's a miracle. But a better way to think of it is Jesus was man as God intended man to be. Not, Jesus wasn't some crazy thing out there that none of us could ever hope to be. We have the same Holy Spirit baptized us, living with us, empowering us that Jesus had. In fact, even to the point where Jesus says later in his ministry, he says, look, when the Holy Spirit comes on you telling his boys about the day of Pentecost, you will do even greater things than you've seen me do. You're going to get the same Holy Spirit that I have, and you'll be able to do even greater things than what you've seen me do. Jesus wasn't some supernatural, couldn't fail no matter what. He was God incarnate, which again, blows our minds, and that's okay. But he was us as we were intended to be, completely dependent on the Holy Spirit and walking confidently in the identity 
that God has given us. Everything began for Jesus at this moment when God spoke identity over him. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. That paves the way for anything else. And look at the very next verse. Immediately, again, a Peterism. Mark is the shortest gospel, yet uses the word immediately more than all of the others combined. It's 16 chapters. He uses immediately 14 times. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. God spoke identity over Jesus, and it doesn't say immediately the devil came and dragged him into the wilderness. What does it say? The Spirit drove him. God led Jesus into a dry and barren place to be tested. We don't like that. That doesn't sound like our American Christianity, where God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy all the time. God spoke identity over Jesus and then led him to be tempted. And what was he tempted? When he was with the enemy, and again, Peter doesn't even go into the whole story, but you can find it in Matthew and Luke and John. He was tempted to lay down the identity that God gave him. Boy, you look pretty hungry. Maybe God doesn't care about you. Maybe you should just make some bread out of that stone yourself. Does God really delight in you? Are you really his son? And is is he really a good father? You should probably just take care of it yourself. You know, he said that he'd protect you. You could throw yourself off the top of the temple and his angels would come and they would carry you. You wouldn't even strike your foot on the ground. You should test him and see. Because is he really good? Does he really delight in you? Are you really his beloved son? Or was that just something he said? Let's take a shortcut, Jesus. I'll give you all the world right now and all of its splendor. You just bow down to me. You don't have to go through the difficult way that God has before you. Because again, is he really a good father? Are you really his beloved? Does he delight in you? Let's just take a shortcut. Just bow to me instead. Everything the enemy was tempting him with was lay down the identity that God just gave you and create your own. But Jesus, because he stood on that firm foundation, was able to withstand the temptation. I'm hungry, but he is a good God and he will provide for me what I need. And even says here, the angels came and ministered to Jesus. His father provided when he needed and he refused to take a shortcut. He refused to question the love of his father for him, his identity that God had given him. Is this making sense? I'm getting some stares. Yes? Okay. Proper understanding of identity is how John the Baptist was John the Baptist. Remember what I said before? I can't even imagine being that famous and that humble at the same time. How did John manage that? John had a proper understanding of who he was and who Jesus was. Look, guys, I'm not worth following. Not because woe is me, I'm just, I couldn't do anything right. John was rocking it, the most vibrant ministry of the time, but he kept things in perspective. Compared to him, I'm nothing. I am happy to be serving in whatever role the Father puts me in because if it glorifies him, I'm in. I must decrease, he must increase. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Again, not because John was whipping himself in the back, poor me, because he went, he is truly that good. And And John experienced the love of God because he was safe in the identity of God. He didn't have to go scrounge and get his own and make his own name and and get everyone to praise him to feel good because he went, my father's already praising me. The more humble I am, the higher I see him lifted up, the more love I receive from him. Not that God's pouring out more good job. Here's a little more good job. But he created the capacity to receive more because I'm his son. He delights in me. I don't have to go get a crowd. I'm free now to point people to Jesus, the thing that he was created to do because he was secure in the identity that God had given him. My role is to pave the way and make straight the path because people need to see him. 
and he found life in it, actually to the point of happily giving his life to speak that truth. John the Baptist is beheaded during the lifetime of Jesus by Herod because he refused to cave on any of this. He refused to please men. He went, my father has called me here to say, make straight the path because Jesus is coming. No matter the cost, I will happily walk that road because he was secure in who the father had called him to be and he was secure in who the father was. Does that make sense, church? The problem starts when our identity gets twisted. You see, we have been given Jesus' very own identity. The, the Father speaks of us, you are my beloved child, and I delight in you. That word delight in the Greek actually means pleasingly acceptable. Not begrudgingly take on, but looking forward to accepting, to bringing in. Brings God joy to delight in his children. He is a good father. And he says, you are my child. I delight in you. The problem is we get that twisted. We have been adopted into his family. Romans 8 talks about this. We have been made co-heirs with Christ, equal recipients in the kingdom. Everything Jesus has a right to claim, we have a right to claim. Not because of anything good that we did, but because of everything good that Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that, excuse me, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the great exchange by some. It means everything filthy, dirty, shameful, guilty that we did was taken from us and put on Christ at the cross. Everything good, righteous, holy, and praiseworthy that he did is put on to us. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the shameful you. He doesn't see the guilty you. He sees Christ's righteousness put on you. He sees my child whom I love and delight in when he looks at you. That is scripturally clear. We cannot, from Scripture, argue anything else other than we have been adopted into the family and given that firm foundation of identity. The problem is, here's how it goes in most of our heads. I'm God's child. He delights in me until I mess up. This is the lie that most of us believe. God is a good God, and I'm a decent kid, but uh-oh. I screwed up again. Now God is mad at me. God is ashamed of me. God can't wait to drop the hammer and to kick me out. These are the lies that we believe. Our identity gets twisted because we've believed some lies. We talked a, a couple weeks back, one of our values as a church is divine expectation and engagement. Living with a sense of expectancy that we desire God to break in and invade our every day. And that we want to partner with him when he does. Proper identity is the foundation for that. Because as soon as I buy into this, have I messed up today? Yes. I'll be honest with you. Do I mess up every day? Multiple times. So if I'm walking around going, man, I'm God's child and he lights in me, but oh, I did it again. And shame and guilt and all of these different things. Am I living with expectancy? No. Because I, like truly, most of us live like this. We believe that God's just waiting to drop the hammer. He's waiting to say, I told you so. He's waiting to go, I can't believe you did it again. And who's going to show up and work in my life when he's that kind of father? You know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't carry guilt and shame and expect God to show up at the same time because what I'm telling myself and honestly what I'm telling him is I'm not even worthy for you to show up. Don't bother. I'm certainly not looking for it. And this begins to crush us every day. There's something that I call the shame cycle. A lot of people have talked about this and probably call it different things. But it's this idea that Maybe you start the day in a good place and you've memorized some verses and I am God's child. He delights in me. And then you say that thing to your kids. You go to that website. You lose your temper in the car. You, whatever it may be, the shame comes on, the guilt and the shame. 
And what we tend to do, instead of saying, God, I'm still your son. And even right now, even though like I, I hurt our relationship, you still delight in me. Would you forgive me? Would you take this from me? What we tend to do is we go, oh, I can't believe I did it again. I'm so gross. There's no way he wants to look at me. I can't even look at him because I might see the, the look of disappointment on his face. And so we begin to hold God at arm's length, which makes us feel alone. And the weight of our shame gets so heavy. And listen, here's just human nature. Every single one of us, when we feel bad, we reach for something to comfort us. And in those lies, we've said, okay, it can't be God because he must be ashamed of me. And so what do we naturally reach for to comfort us? Sin. Because sin offers some instant gratification, made me feel good in the moment, but man, we know it carries a sledgehammer on the back end. And then we find ourselves heaped with more guilt and with more shame. And we tell ourselves the Father has to be even more distant now, and we feel more in the dumps, and we get trapped in this cycle of shame that actually keeps us chained to our sin because we have our identities twisted. We think that God can't really be that good, and we know that we don't really deserve it. And so we give in to the lies. One of the, the reasons behind this, the, the American church, I heard it said actually this past week, I was listening to a podcast, and they said the American church is like a body with a massive head and a frail, weak little body. We in the American church, we've decided that what fixes everything is just learn more. Just know more things and you'll be a better Christian, and you'll be a better parent and husband and wife and whatever it may be. Just read this book. Just memorize this verse. Just know more stuff, and you'll be fixed. And the thing is, we have no strength in our body. We, we don't know how to live these things out. Most of us think that if we just memorize a verse, things should be different. What we see with Jesus is Jesus didn't just find a piece of paper on the ground that said... You are my son. I delight in you. And he went, oh, cool. Thanks, God. It wasn't just something he pulled out of the Old Testament, something he memorized. He had an experience with God that changed everything. He had an experience where he heard the Father speak that over him. Now this, some people may get uncomfortable with some of this, but let me tell you, in this church, we believe that God still speaks. Does God speak through his word? Absolutely. Is God only allowed to speak through his word? No. Now, anything God says will never contradict his word. His word is our filter. God will always agree with what he has already said. So some people get nervous when we talk about God speaking with that. Because what, what if somebody says, God told me it's okay to divorce my wife? Well, he already said it's not. So that wasn't him. But Jesus didn't just pull a verse out and keep telling it to himself over and over again. I don't know if they had post-it notes back then, but he didn't have them all over his chariot dashboard. I don't know what they would do. But he had an experience with the Father that changed everything, where he heard God tell him, not, hey, everyone is my child. You are my child, and I delight in you. Most of us have been trained to settle with just keep repeating it to yourself and maybe this time it'll stick. Very few of us have been trained to sit and wait with, again, divine expectation for the Father to speak. Most of us, when we feel like, man, I'm just, I'm a bad child, then and the shame and the guilt start to come on. Instead of learning to sit, and this is so hard, quietly with the Father and go, I need to hear from you who you say I am. We just try to fix it ourselves. I'll just read this book. Again, I've got this, uh, this ring binder with a whole bunch of verses. I'll just work harder at memorizing those. When what we really need is to sit at the feet of the Father and go, you tell me how you see me, because I'm jacked up. Everything I believe about myself does not agree with your word. I need for you to show me. That's what happened with Jesus. He had an experience that changed everything. Don't settle for just more knowledge. And knowledge is not a bad thing. But knowledge is not the only thing. Are we taking time to actually sit and receive from him? And we go, oh, I don't know, that seems too spiritual. Come on, fam. 
to sit and be still and wait for the Father. Divine expectation says, I'm not leaving until you show up. I know that what's going on in my head right now is a lie, and you are the only one that can fix it. I'm not leaving till you show up. Show me how you see me. Things can and will be different when we approach our walk with the Father with that kind of intensity and passion. Do not settle for memorizing some more words or reading some more books. So now, a time to learn from each other. Uh, like we do at the end of a lot of our services. I, I do not believe that I am the only one that has been gifted to speak or teach. I do not believe I'm the only one that has heard from the Lord on this subject. Uh, so I would love to hear from you guys. And you can just shout it out where you're sitting. Uh, if you can, pull your mask aside just while you're talking so that people can hear and then you can hook it back up. But let, a couple questions. Who are you in Christ? What is the identity that God has given you? And this is where you share. These aren't trick answers, by the way. You can just shout them out. Child. His child. I've given you a few today. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Okay, a sinner saved by grace. What's your identity? Who are you? Citizen of the kingdom. Okay, citizen of the kingdom. Chosen. Chosen. I promise you, I'm not going to slap your hand. It's okay. Light in the darkness. Let me ask you sometimes. It feels almost a little arrogant sometimes to say these things about yourself, right? And I think the enemy uses that. Who do you think you are to say that you're light in the darkness? I saw what you did. I know who you are. He says it. Who has God said that you are? What identity has God given you? What else? More than a conqueror. Romans 8, it's beautiful. Redeemed. Guys, this should be the easiest thing we do all week, but it's hard. A disciple, good. Mm -hmm. His ambassador. Mm -hmm. Whiter than snow. Blameless. Okay, keep thinking on it. Let's go to the next one. This one oftentimes is easier for us to answer. What are the lies the enemy has tried to feed you about your identity? Or most often, the lies we feed ourselves. I think we make it so easy on the enemy. What are the lies we feed ourselves about our identity? Never good enough. Never good enough. Not, worthy. Not worthy. What else? A disappointment. A disappointment. Or maybe tied in with this. Again, you can answer however you feel comfortable. What are the lies the enemy has fed you about God's identity? I know some of you are terrified to share in public, and it's okay. What was it? He always says, did God say? Uh-huh. Yeah, the enemy always questions God. Did, did God really say this? Like, yeah. For me, it's always, honestly, it comes back to, he's not really that good. I mean, sure, he could forgive you one time, maybe even ten times, but this is like 105 He's not that good. What else? What lies are we fed? What are the, what are the lies that just keep repeating in your head? You got to earn it. You didn't do it. You didn't do a thing to earn that. How dare you? Yeah. What was it? It's not a big deal. It's just a little sin. Why even worry about it? Mm-hmm. Were you really set free? Did he really say that? Did he really do that? What else? Yeah. Yeah, you're alone. 
So the last question, what do we do with the lies? Step one and two, I guess, depending, identify the lies, identify the truth. If we're going to overcome the lies, first thing we got to do is call them what they are. Okay, here is the lie that I'm tempted to believe. And maybe even some of us are able at this point to go, and here's the truth I know I should believe. How do we bridge the gap? What do we do with the lies? This is the tricky part. And it's important. I I was not at all trying to poo-poo the idea of memorizing Scripture. Uh, I would be arguing with Scripture itself if I tried to say that. What what I'm trying to say, and I hope I made this clear, it's not the only tool in our belt. It's not the only thing we have is just keep repeating it and maybe it'll sink in. It is absolutely a weapon in our arsenal and one that should be used in a mighty way because we believe that uh, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word is alive and powerful, but not just when used like any other text. When partnered with the presence of God through his Holy Spirit, the word comes to life. But Kim said something uh, powerful there is, first of all, almost, hey, we're in a quarantine culture, right? Quarantine the lie. Paul says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. The first step truly is just recognizing it and going, wait, wait, wait. I refuse to believe you. You're a lie. I'm going to put you over here. And now to make it obedient to Christ. Lord Jesus, here is the thought that I'm tempted to believe Make my thoughts obedient to you. You, Use your word. Use the power of prayer and your desire to speak to me. Make my thoughts obedient to you because first things first, I recognize this is a sinful thought. This is a thought telling me I'm less than. This is a thought telling me you're less than. And first things first, imprisoned. I, I refuse to just buy it. So what are some other steps we can take in making those thoughts obedient? Yeah. Uh, The idea of of sitting with Jesus and going, okay, here's where I'm at. I need you to change my heart. I need to hear from you. How many of you, and and let's be honest here, how many does that seem like kind of a lot? Like, I don't really know how to do that. Honestly, I'm not even sure I'd know where to start with that. Anyone? Okay, a couple of us. And this is where, again, we are the church. Grab someone. Grab someone who seems a little further along down that path than you are and go, hey, will you come and sit with me? Uh, There's some lies that I am buying into and I'm trying some different things and it's not working. I, I feel like I just need to get alone with the Father, but I don't even know how. Will you come and pray with me? Will you teach me how to do that? We have those in our body who have some experience with this. None of us are perfect, but some who are a little further down the road who have had some experiences sitting at the feet of God and going, hey, would would you just speak to me? Let us help. Let us come alongside. One of the lies that we, and somebody spoke it, you're alone. That is a lie. 
You are a part of the family of God and family sticks together. If I see my children believing lies, I don't just go, man, I hope they get that figured out someday. I walk with them and I go, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not who you are. You are my child. I delight in you. And I walk with them to help them remember, we are the family of God. Do not fight this fight alone. Anything else for any of these? Ooh, it's a race. I love those. Mm-hmm. You allow yourself to feed on things that will deteriorate the truth of God's word. Sure. Then that's what's going to speak to you. Sure. And you will not hear it. So you have to distance yourself yeah. from things that would bring down the truth. Mm-hmm. In, in youth ministry, we had this phrase that we would use um, garbage in, garbage out. You know, like, we all know this, like, how you eat affects how you feel, right? What you take into your mind, how you entertain yourself, music, movie, TVs, uh, books you read, sometimes even just people you talk with and conversations you have, all of that influences the way you think and see yourself, the way you see the world, the way you see God. We somehow, we, we get it in some physical areas, but then we go, but I can watch whatever I want, listen to whatever I want, and that doesn't really affect me. And it's silliness. What you take in changes you. And there's times that things that we're taking in make this fight so much harder than it needs to be. Okay. So this, like, I wanted to, I was about to share this testimony. So we were just kind of walking with some of the front of our Dave, who was farther along the journey and listening to God. And this is years ago, and we were very much had just woken up. And why we have heard the story of some of our battles in our parents. And we just couldn't get it together. We couldn't get our tempers under control. Rage was an issue. Um, it just was, and we just were seeking God and we're like, okay, we're trying all these things and it's still not, we're not doing it right. And um, with a friend who encouraged us to sit and listen and and just hear from the Lord. I'm like, okay, God, like, how do we do this? How do we, we are so sorry, we're so tired of these same patterns. Um, and, like, like, how do we do better parents? How do we be better parents? And as we're sitting there quiet, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart very clearly that we didn't have a parenting issue. We had a sonship issue. We had a, a daughtership issue that we didn't need to know how to be better parents and needed to know what it meant to be a son and a daughter. And that if we could grasp how to do that, that that was our issue. Is we were so like, my behavior is what determines how good I am with that. that was, so then when, then when I turned that around and my, that kids just would not do what they were supposed to do, that is what was determining our relationship. And instead, realizing that the whole struggle was to just learn how he sees me, how he sees Christ as his son and as his daughter, how we are that, and if then that was what you wanted us to grasp, and that was like surprise, I don't know, a good maybe eight, nine years ago, and we're still on that journey, but especially just the verse from our saying, like, this is my son, I delight in him, mm-hmm. and, you know, and just like how impactful that has been in bringing us freedom and changing I'm going to invite the music team uh, to come up, and I'm going to close this time in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song as we close. Uh, the song is just called Who You Say I Am, uh, and the whole idea of the song is exactly what we've been talking about. It starts by saying, who am I that the highest king would love me? And then just goes on to remind us, I am who he says I am. He gives me identity. It's not something I earn for myself. And I'm just going to pray that the Lord would help us just maybe a little bit more today to receive what he says about us and to put off the lies that we put on ourselves. So would you join me in praying? Lord Jesus, 
Man, it's absolutely true. Who are we that the highest king would think of us? We are nothing compared to you. In and of ourselves, God, we're sinful, we're filthy, we're shameful. But you are so good that you refuse to leave us there. You made a way for us to become the righteousness of God. I don't even know what to do with that, Father, if I'm honest. But it's an identity that you have given to your children that we could put down guilt and shame because Jesus took every drop of it on the cross and that we could pick up forgiveness and righteousness and truly live as a light in the darkness. God, that is not something that in and of myself I can get my head around. I can live out. I need the miracle of your presence. I need for you to speak that over me, over us. We need for you through your Holy Spirit to reinforce that in our lives. That we would just be able to receive the good gift of the Father. Forgiveness. Removal of shame and guilt. Truly that we could be transformed to become more like you. So God, if there are any of those areas in our lives where we are stiff-arming you because of shame, because of guilt, I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit, you would put your finger on those places of our lives. God, every, our first reaction is going to be to slap your hand away. Don't touch that. Don't go there. But God, may you haunt us with that until we're ready to open our hands and allow you in. Until we're ready to receive what you desire so greatly to give to us and to let go of all of the things that we hate. Move in a way that only you can, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.